Disclaimer. The discussions and personal opinions of the guests do not replace professional advice. It's recommended that you seek your own independent professional mental health or legal support to meet your individual needs. There's so much shame. There's so much embarrassment. Why do I have this? Why can't I figure it out? And yes, I did seek a few different avenues. I had some self-help books, but they were just so bad, you know, on the front cover, overcoming bulimia or... Hello, welcome to today's episode of Life in the Cyclone podcast. This episode is going to be a deep dive into eating disorders through lived experience and I'm delighted to be bringing this guest to you all. Her name is Stephanie Giorgio. Stephanie is a registered psychologist, clinical psychology registrar, published author of her book Food Jail, public speaker and is better known on social media platforms as Mind Food Steph. She also has her own online clinic, Mind Food Psychology, where she's passionate about eating disorders and the relationship between food, body image, and mental health. She draws on her personal experience, and we are privileged to have her share her journey through an eating disorder alongside her professional insights into the area of work. She's a beloved friend with whom we have shared our love for psychology, where we've been on the same journey towards registration together. I've been lucky to have such a beautiful friend in my life who always keeps me accountable and grounded. Welcome, Steph. Hello, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It has been a long time coming. (laughs) I know. We feel so lucky and privileged to have you on Life in the Cyclone podcast. It's something we've wanted to do for such a long time. So we are here. Get right into it. I'm excited. Steph and I have known each other from probably day one of our psychology journey. We've done a lot of our psychology courses together, five degrees and counting for both of us. I wanted to ask you, Steph, and I know you've written about this in your book, Food Jail. You have a really amazing personal lived experience story about living life with an eating disorder that you've used in your professional practice because it's recovered, it's managed, but it's something that you can draw on and you share with all your clients. Do you want to share a little bit about your story? Yeah, I would love to. Thank you, Rachel. And go us just making it throughout (laughs) that degree. I remember when I first met Rachel, I'm like, wow, that girl has such cool style and she dresses so nice. You were inspiration for me. So yeah, we've come really fast. I just wanted to acknowledge that. Um, So my story starts basically in my teenage years. I grew up in the era of, you know, thin was in, everyone was dieting. My mum in particular was buying low-fat food, low carbs, low sugar, went through all of that. And so I just grew up really believing that it's normal to diet and want to lose weight. I thought, oh, that's just what you do. Everyone wants to lose weight. It's healthy to lose weight. And I started to sort of be a bit restrictive. I got into a bit of modeling and I think that's what was the trigger point for me was the photographer when taking photos made a comment about my body, about being bloated and I just died inside and I thought that's it. I need to restrict bread. I need to not eat anymore. And I just started restricting my food in an attempt to change my weight, shape, and size. Mm -hmm. And then what we know through um, eating disorders is restriction leads to binge. And then I developed this binge eating disorder, bulimia, and I never really thought it was a problem because I was highly functional. I was going to uni. I was running a business. I was working full-time. And 
I was almost like a high functioning person with an eating disorder, but disordered eating was so normalized back then. It's when I guess fitness influencers were just coming to the space, low calorie foods were coming out. It was very normalized. So I didn't think there was a big issue because I was still functioning. And as you know, Rachel, the DSM-5 has changed in his di- in its diagnostic criteria. And back then, I just don't think the level of impairment would have rendered me, I guess, appropriate for a quote-unquote eating disorder. And that's why it took mm-hmm. me so long to get help and support because I wasn't really around back then. Wow. I think it's so incredible. And you've obviously highlighted so many things. My mind first, I'm going to ask you first off, if you can tell us in detail, because I think everyone's probably interested to know, what was the comment that that photographer said to you in a photo shoot? <laughs> well, we had to take different styles of photos and there was a bikini one. And mm-hmm. I remember he was taking photos. He stopped the camera. He looked at me up and down and he said, did you eat before you came? Oh, like, yeah. I had two of those mini dinner rolls. And he was like, okay, you should never eat before a shoot because you look bloated. And I had no idea. I used to love bread. I come from a Greek family. There's so much food. And I was mortified. And he actually made me shoot the bikini again, not because just I was bloated, but also because I didn't have the right bathers. So he made me go out and get these expensive cheetah bikinis, which were like $80 back then. And Mm -hmm. I did it because, you know, I wanted to make it in the modeling world and, That was the comment, the, did you eat before you came? You're bloated. And I actually put a photo in the book of me and how I looked Mm -hmm. at this shoot, because if you look at it, it is a normal 15 year old girl in a photo. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but back then it was the most horrendous thing I'd ever seen. Absolutely. And like, you think about a 15 year old female, normal development, right? Like your body is in the prime of changing. So something like bloated, I mean, many layers to that because I think someone's comment like that, they do not understand the depths of how that can shape somebody's identity, let alone like, you know, the profession or what you're doing in modelling sets, as we know, unrealistic standards, the perfectionism, you know, having a perfect picture on the output. It's it's just not the usual average daily standard of everyone's body type. Exactly. And I think people who are listening, mothers, other professionals, when you're younger, those words really do have an impact. Whether you're a mum or you have children, what you say about food and body image, it really, really sticks. Mm-hmm. So just being mindful of the words that we do use. Mm. I have a question because, you know, you're talking about like binge eating disorder and was back in the day when it was so normalised and all these things were coming out. How long before you realised that maybe it was an issue because it sounds like obviously from 15 or teenage or before, it was a longer-term thing that you endured. Mm. How long was it before you thought it was a problem? That's a good question. And I used to sort of say, oh, I have seasonal eating issues because Mm -hmm. it would come and it would go and I I would get a handle on it and then I didn't. I think when I really realised it became a problem was when it really started to impact my life. So I was running a fitness studio for women and I was driving home and I was so tired. And this was maybe 2010 or maybe yeah. Yeah, around that time. And 
I was so tired. I was actually driving on the wrong side of the road and it took other people to wave me down and say, oh my God, what are you doing? And I was like, oh crap. And I just sort of turned and I was that tired. I was just out of it. Every morning I just woke up like a zombie. My mum knew something was up. Like they all knew. My sisters knew, my mum knew, but no one knew how to address it because I was so defensive. I was in denial, but it became a problem when I was too exhausted to do anything. I just felt like I'd lost my spark. I wasn't engaged or present with my family and I just didn't care. I just felt very apathetic. I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was depressed and I wasn't really anxious, like maybe had anxiety around food, but it was more just a vibe about me. I used to be so vibrant and bubbly and outgoing and I just became this shell with no spark. Yeah, like an almost like a what withdrawn version maybe of yourself or just a, a softened non yeah. version. Yeah. yeah, because what we're talking about, like you and I both know with eating disorders, the re- reason why or one of the reasons why you have to treat them with such care. And in our psychological jargon word, we call it transdiagnostic, which means we're looking at all layers around somebody's health, physical health. You know, what I hear in what you're talking about is, um feeling so flat so exhausted that can be just a physical health side as well as you know when you're malnourished when you're not fueling your body when you're not um I guess keeping yourself fueled in that space then your mood and your ability to manage your mood gets affected right Yes. And I think as well, that's what I see a lot of clients will come in, say, I'm really tired. My mood is really low. And I think it's so important to assess their eating patterns because disordered eating gets missed. But the reason a lot of people are tired is not because of other issues or depression. They're not eating enough. And it's that simple. When you are in a calorie deficit, when you're not eating enough, you're going to feel tired. You're going to feel irritable. You're going to have low mood. And no one sort of attributes that to eating habits because people yes. they eat too much yeah which is then what you're saying that restrictive eating it's like you know I mean all these even I've heard it before too and all these low calorie diets and you look at the calorie numbers it's still lesser and I get it if it is you know um someone's sport or just a, a, a short-term thing but yes. even then when people are somewhat manipulating body image and body physique it's tread with caution, isn't it? Because you have to be mentally grounded in that space. Yeah, you have to be in the right place. And I think one of my goals, I just always wanted to be a bodybuilder. That was one of Mm. my dreams and what I wanted. And then I never got there, obviously. I became a psychologist instead. (laughs) But there does come a point where you need to ask yourself, why am I doing this? What is it I really want out of this? Given how we know And a big part of our work is what we would call formulation Mm. and understanding, let's say, root causes and origin of something like an eating disorder or binge eating disorder. Could have started out as restricted eating, disordered eating and moved into binge eating. Do you have a clear formulation or idea of, I guess, the things of how it started for you and putting all those links in the chain for our listeners? I love this and I've always wanted to do a formulation on myself. So I think for me what predisposed me and made me vulnerable to developing an eating disorder and disordered eating was, one, the era I grew up in. It was very body image. It was very body conscious. 
to having a mother who dieted. And my mom was amazing. She loved us. She loved eating. She loved food. But I witnessed dieting behaviors. I saw mm-hmm. her try, you know, Weight Watchers. I saw her whatever, Light and Easy. I used to be on Light and Easy. I used to do these things as well. So it was very mm-hmm. normalized. So I think children learn behaviors of seeing that, always seeing those ads on TV, the new ab blaster or the new treadmill. So I think I was exposed to a lot of diet culture, dieting behavior. So I think that made me vulnerable. I think the trigger was high school and having very thin friends. And why don't I look like that? And why can't I be like that? And getting in the modeling industry and that comment that I guess uh, precipitated dieting behavior and then the dieting behavior being unable to keep up with that led to binge eating, which perpetuated thoughts of I'm not good enough. I can't stick to anything. Why can't I just eat this way? Which maintained low self-esteem feelings of not being good enough. And then that's what I think it was. Yeah. That's what yeah. the cycle. Yeah. Interesting. Cause it's even like, you know, when we talk about that disconnect around somebody's self image, you know, you people tend to reach for external sources to be able to neutralize internal distress. So what that just generally means is you can reach for um, an overcompensatory behavior of food to just comfort or to alleviate what you're feeling because you're saying you were not being able to meet, let's say, this standard of being thin and you've got friends around you that are thin, you've got society telling you to be thin. There are all those subliminal messages that society has a lot of power in, right? Yeah. And I want to emphasize that not one eating disorder is the same. And Mm. a lot of people say, you know, it's to do with trauma. It's to do with this. And I want to highlight that everyone's picture is, is different. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, it's like, why am I like this? I didn't have, you know, a traumatic upbringing. I didn't have all these other problems that other people have. Like, how did this get me essentially? And I just want to highlight that doesn't matter what you've been through someone will always go through something and it will look different for everyone agree agree and I might share like you know often when we're looking at let's say development and course in someone's diagnosis the way I just like to explain it is it's like the perfect cocktail of a combination of things that come together you know obviously yes our diagnostic manual we'll talk about temperament environmental factors genetic but a lot of it has to come together for it to essentially come to fruition you know and that's where you say not one is one and the same mm. yep absolutely 100 percent mm. um because i think the question we were saying before was you know you thought it was an issue somewhere um at some point driving home feeling like you were so fatigued and now you're a psychologist, mm. did you then seek professional help or was it something that you sort of alleviated on your own? Yeah, and that was actually that was it. So I was studying psychology at the time and I was running a business and I thought, how the hell are you going to help someone when you're messed up, oh. you know? Blind leading the blind. How are you going to be a psychologist when you have a secret eating disorder that no one knows about? And there was so much shame around it, Rachel, back then. There was so much shame. There was so much embarrassment. Why do I have this? Why can't I figure it out? And yes, I did seek a few different avenues. I had some self-help books, but they were just so bad, you know, on the front cover, overcoming bulimia or, you know, five steps to your self-help book. And that's why when I wrote my book, I wanted it to look more like a novel. I wanted it to be a bit more 
secretive and not look like you're carrying around this big red flag. I have an eating disorder book. So I got some books, but didn't really help. I went and saw a psychologist and he was interesting. He was different, very psychodynamic. Mm -hmm. But the main thing he kind of told me to do was spend more time with your family and just journal. So I used to take half a day once a week off work as my self-care time because what I realized was I was a workaholic. I never felt good enough in other areas of my life. So I would work, work, work. And then when I got home, I was so tired or so worn down that binge eating was me time. That was my release. So I think it was a strategy to manage stress as well as exercise that just got taken uh, too far. So I did seek help. I don't know how helpful it was at the time. I don't know if he was the right fit. And it's funny because later on, a few like years after, I went back to him and I said, why didn't you do CBT on me? I had an eating disorder. I literally went and confronted my psychologist. Yeah, yeah. And he had some valid points and he handled it well. But then I also went and had hypnosis because I thought I had a chocolate Ooh, addiction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the truth is I was binging on chocolate because I was restricting it. So I didn't have an eating addiction. When you restrict something, you're going to binge on it. So I had hypnosis. I saw a psychotherapist. So I did lots of different things. But yeah. I kind of created my own system that integrates everything and it works for me and it's worked for other people too. Yeah. Yeah. How good is that? And obviously, as you're saying, you know, to your old other psychologist, you know, why didn't you do CBT on me? Our profession has progressed significantly further around eating disorders to have, and we're moving in that space of eating disorder accreditation that you have, um, CBTE, just so that professionals out there can really understand the transdiagnostic approach and the severity because under the category, which we'll go into a bit later, um, has anorexia nervosa but founded on many things that you and I know and heavily learned about at some point in our studies with the starvation theory because mm-hmm. eating disorders severely impacts people's level of functioning on day-to-day basis. It just doesn't happen, right? Yes, exactly. And, yeah, no, what you're saying is is right. Do you want to highlight to us why you're passionate about working with eating disorders and even that eating disorder accreditation and why you think it's important across our profession to have? Yeah, it's because I get it. Mm-hmm. I feel I've really been through it and I understand eating disorders well. It's not to say that other people don't who've done the training. There's many qualified professionals, but I feel it's under-recognized and it occurs in the general population more than we'd like. So we've got an eating disorder, which is a diagnosed condition, but then we have disordered eating, which is what you see every day in the media and you can easily fall into the eating disorder category. So I'm passionate about not just working with the clinical population, but influencing the general population. I think being a young woman growing up in that culture, I'm passionate about it. I get it. And I've come out the other side and not a lot of people do. And I feel because I've been able to do that and work it out, I can help others do that. So that's what led me down this path. And it's so crucial. We have to eat. We need to eat. It's part of our life. So how do we do it in a way that's 
balanced and functional and adaptive. And I think it's just so important to help people through that. Yes. And look, you know what? You're so good in the space of eating disorders and it's relatable. I think that's a thing in your own lived experience that you can actually draw on that and help your clients. And, you know, I wouldn't mind going into like, even if you're talking about, let's say your issues around restrictive eating and then disordered eating and then the binge eating side, what happened for you in that space for restricted eating? And then what happened for you? Second part to that question is how did you then resolve some of that in adaptive functioning space? Yes, good question. So the first thing I recognized was any time I would eat a forbidden food or what we call it in eating disorder treatment is breaking a dietary rule. So people don't realize, but they have this very rigid style of thinking and they have rules. I shouldn't eat carbs. I shouldn't eat late at night. So I was eating perfectly in public and I thought if I eat really well and I lose weight, that's the answer to the problem, whereas it wasn't. It was the minute I would break a dietary rule, so I'd have a piece of chocolate, that's it. It was over. I thought, no, I failed. I'll just eat all the chocolate. I'll start again tomorrow. And I call this flat tire syndrome. It's like you're driving on the highway, you get a puncture in your tire and you're like, oh, well, I might as well get out and slash my other three tires. Doesn't make any sense, but we've all been there. We've all done that. So the way I got out of it, and it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of bravery because the biggest fear is people are going to gain weight. Mm -hmm. And it was, I needed to let go of that. I need to let go of, it doesn't matter if you gain weight, you need to heal this. You can't live like this anymore. So I actually began food, food blogging on Instagram. I was taking photos of my food on Instagram and people loved the journey. People were following it. And I started to eat food and then notice, oh, I didn't magically, you know, put on all this weight overnight. I can eat waffles and be okay. I can eat pancakes and be okay. So it was food exposure that helped challenge my beliefs around body weight, as well as being more cognitively flexible, not having this expectation of eating clean all the time, not feeling like a failure if I enjoyed a meal out and knowing you can be both and be healthy. Yeah. And those food blogging journey and those days showed you as well, like, you know, I've heard you talk, you know, we talk about moderation and you get to enjoy all the food, but you really did enjoy it. You know, it brought more of that mindful eating, a different belief around food. Is that right? Yes. And just who I used to hang around, even when we would go out, Rachel, that, oh my gosh, she eats sweets. Oh my gosh, she eats pancakes. Oh my God, she's ordering a, a, a full fat drink, whatever it is. And you realize that the people around you who are thin, they don't necessarily eat super healthy. And the people around you who may be bigger, maybe really struggling and thinking, I just need to eat healthy. So hanging around people who are not <laughs> eating disordered can really help or who aren't fixated on dieting. And that's what happened with me. I really changed my social circles when I was younger. I hung around people who were passionate about food photography, whereas I used to hang around people who were passionate about weight loss. Yeah, and to be honest, in the modelling industry, just those unrealistic standards and expectations that one size fits all kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, and also normalised. Yeah. Yeah. When you go to a gym, when you hang out, I used to do these fitness groups. Everyone would talk about, oh, I need to lose weight. I ate so much on the weekend. I ate so bad, you know, and I... Now, when I hear that talk, I just disengage from it. I'm like, mm. sorry, not not doing this today. 
Oh, and you know what? I've even seen you along the journey. Like you have mentioned to me somewhere in there that overlapped in the space of exercise. Can you share mm. a little bit about that for yourself? Oh, yeah. So I used to be a massive over-exerciser to the point because I used to teach fitness classes, but then I'd also go to the gym and then this and that. And I think learning that it's okay to have a rest day, it's okay to not exercise or yoga or Pilates or stretching is just as valuable. So I think assessing, if you're listening to this, just assessing your relationship with exercise as well. I mean, you would know as well, you had an athlete background. So going from that extreme training to, I guess, having a different style of training now, like mentally, I imagine that would be a big shift as well. Absolutely. You know, you you maintain to some degree, I'd say I maintain like an athlete mindset and then you're not training like that. So the body does it differently. And there's a, a large amount of acceptance and grounding you have to do to go through that process, right? I think we've both had our transitions and adjustments along the way. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So I think overcompensatory behavior that fits in with exercise. For some people, it may be laxatives, it may be diuretics, it may be purging. So if you are listening to this or you know someone who you think is overcompensating, it could be a sign of an eating disorder. Yeah, for sure. So then on your story, I actually want to ask you because it makes me smile and I think it's a really good space that we can talk about it, but how proud are you of yourself for being able to have an experience like this in an eating disorder or disordered eating in your life but coming out on the other end and knowing that you're better for it and you can use your lived experience to help other people as a psychologist. How proud are you of yourself for that? Oh, thank you, Rachel. Thank you for for pointing that out. Look, I'm proud. <laughs> I am proud. I'm proud of a lot of things and I, I'm not perfect and I'm still, I have my days, but that's what I try to emphasize is that body image is not this journey. You don't wake up one day and you're like, okay, I've made it. I'm healed now. It's a daily decision. It's a daily decision to say, you know what? I went to the gym today. I didn't put all my effort in. I was pretty tired, but hey, I showed up and I'm proud of that. So I think being proud is about taking pride in the little things, even if they're not perfect. But I'm I'm extremely proud. I mean, getting through four degrees, doing our clinical registrar, Mm -hmm. being a psychologist, helping people. And that's where I really get my inspiration from is just seeing people get better and seeing people who go from complete hopelessness to being able to eat waffles and eat different food. That's what makes me really proud. But I do take a lot of pride in how far I've I've come, but it's no, by no means is it perfect, but I'm, I am proud. So thank you. Yay. The reason I'll explain why I talk about pride. And I think it's really important that we all do. I think as psychologists, we often highlight things that people are proud of or the positive self-affirmations. However, for myself, you know, with any kind of mental health issue, so much of it is riddled with shame as an underlying feeling that people have from being able to talk about, feeling like they're not worthy enough because of what they do. And on the opposing side of a feeling of shame is our pride, which we also sometimes need to highlight and let it grow. So I think you've done an amazing job. Thank you. You too. You too. Haven't we all? We've all been through something. You're listening to this. You should definitely be proud of whatever it is you've accomplished as well. Agree. And that's why we always say we're in it together because we never go through life in a space where you intentionally want to be alone. 
at the end of each uh, podcast episode, I have some ethos life questions that I generally ask. It can be a one word answer, otherwise a one sentence answer. What message do you want people in the community to know about eating disorders? I think the message is that you may always get thoughts that come up, thoughts you should be eating better, exercising more, not eating so much chocolate, and that's okay. It's about recognizing these thoughts and not getting taken away by them because your thoughts aren't facts. So your decision in the moment really dictates your success long-term. So know that you can have the thoughts, but you don't have to engage in them. Good one. I love that. Such a good message. (laughs) What is one daily self-care task that you cannot live without? Definitely getting outside and getting in the sun. That's why I moved to the Gold Coast because I need sun. I need getting outside. And I think going for a walk is something I have to do daily just to help get a break, get some sun, get some endorphins and recommend everyone does the same. Even if it's a quick one, five minutes. One of my, I'm going to add in there, one of my old swimming coaches, um, he's passed now, but he's amazing, but he taught me face the sun. And it's an absolute beautiful thing that you can do in your day to absorb that kind of sunlight and take it in. Question three is, what is your favorite food? Oh, I love this question. I love sweets. I love desserts and I used to be really shamed about it. I felt a lot of shame about it, but now I just own it. I love chocolate and peanut butter pancakes. They're my thing right now and acai bowls. I'm loving them at the moment. Anything nutty and chocolatey, I'm there. That's my favorite foods. I'm on board with you all that way. (laughs) (laughs) All the brunch, the sweet brunch dishes. Oh, we could never brunch enough. We loved it. (laughs) It's been such a privilege to have you on, to share your insights, your expertise, and most importantly, your incredible story. So thank you so much for coming on Life in the Cyclone podcast. Thank you for having me, Rachel. Take care, everyone. If you'd like to access our team of psychologists for professional mental health support, please visit www.ethospsychology.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to Life in the Cyclone on your favourite podcast listing platform to better understand psychology today.